0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways.
0: That was eight years ago. Eight years that perhaps feel a lot longer than that, given everything we've been through. And eight years is a long time for anything, but it's a really long time for a federal government. By the time Canadians next go to the polls, Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals will likely have been in power nearly a decade. Whenever it is, they'll be aiming for their fourth consecutive election win. Right now, not looking like a great bet. A huge cabinet shuffle that was supposed to be a reset for this government hasn't stopped the bleeding of their support in the polls. After spending the years since the 2021 election pretty much neck and neck, the past couple of months have seen the Conservative Party open up leads that some polls have pegged close to double digits. The next election, of course, likely is still a long ways away. And the Liberals do have some built-in advantages that aren't typically captured by horse race polls. So a collapse in that next election is not a certainty. If you pay attention to Canadian political history, however, you begin to get a sense of just what the government is up against here and the kind of precedent a comeback at this point would set. So to put it simply, are the Liberals done or not? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Mosscrop is a writer, an author, a podcaster, and a political commentator. You can find all his writing at davidmoskrop.substack.com. You can also read his book, Too Dumb for Democracy.
1: You can also listen to it now.
0: Right, you narrated it yourself. So if people like your voice right here, there's more.
1: Yes, if, if you are looking to get to sleep fast, I cannot recommend my audiobook enough. Perfect. David, how are the poll numbers
0: looking these days uh, for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals? And maybe even just compare where they are now to where they are even a few months or six months ago.
1: Well, if I were a liberal poll watcher, I'd be inclined to spend a lot of time in a dark movie theater right now, Hmm. trying to get my head anywhere uh, but the polls because they are pretty wretched. And they're worse than they were several uh, months ago and a year ago. So writing in The Writ today, uh, Eric Grenier was talking about the comparative Julys, 2022 and 2023. And he says, on average, there's about a six-point conservative gain and a liberal loss of three and a new Democrat loss of two and a half, Hmm. which in our electoral system is a very big swing. Well, and I think this next question gets
0: at the piece that you wrote about the future of this government and uh, what the next election might look like, is there any like particular reason that we can point to for that shift? Or is it just like general gathering dissatisfaction from the electorate?
1: So on balance, the conservatives are up, it looks like roughly 10 points. That seems to be the emerging consensus, which is a lot. Yeah. And for that many people to say, okay, I think I've had enough of these folks. There's probably a handful of those uh, in in the samples who are saying, I'm just really angry right now and tired and I'm going to show that by saying I'm going to vote for the conservatives. Deeper, there are people who probably look at the government eight years in almost and say, well, I don't feel better economically. I don't think things are going to get better in the next several years. There's trust data that suggests that's a... Broad issue. I can't afford housing. Mm-hmm. I can't see a doctor. I can't get a doctor. I, I'm on a wait list for a surgery, and you know maybe that's provincial a little bit, but I blame the feds too. Mm. Same thing with housing. Food's too expensive. Maybe I don't like the weather. <laughs> the weather's been extreme. People will will pick up on things they dislike, and they will look and say, "Well, there's an election coming out, and I'm going to go and blame those folks." And there's probably a lot of that happening alongside, as governments age, mounting scandals. Uh, They they tend to weigh on governments over time. And then just general malaise that emerges. So there's probably a whole bunch of things that are going into this. And then at some point, governments just start aging like milk in the sun. When you say they're aging,
0: how does the Trudeau, the Justin Trudeau liberal government compare to some... Of the longest uh, governing governments in Canada's history, like is eight years a long time? Is it are they long in the tooth for real?
1: Well, it's sort of mixed, and it, it depends a lot on what era you're talking about. I mean, a hundred years ago, a little bit less actually. You know, Mackenzie King governed off and on uh, until the late forties, beginning in the nineteen twenties, for twenty one years. Mm. John A. McDonald governed for nearly 19 years. Th- those are extraordinarily long. Times, But in recent years, you know, Jean Chrétien was 10 years, Stephen Harper was nine years, Brian Mulroney was eight years, and now Justin Trudeau is approaching eight. So coming up on the best before date. He's coming up on the contemporary best before date. Yeah. And, uh, you know, which is eight years is a long time these days, particularly when news cycles are moving this fast and everything is moving so fast and you're overwhelmed by bad news all the time. Eight years adds up pretty quick. In terms of elections themselves...
0: You know, you look back eight years ago, and this was a pretty big mandate uh, given to that government. Their more recent election wins have been a lot smaller. What does that tell us about how difficult the next election could be for this government? Like, is this following a traditional pattern? How unprecedented is, you know, the fourth election?
1: Well... In in the modern era, it is unprecedented, full stop. I mean, J- uh, John A. Macdonald did it, and then right after that, Wilfred Laurier did that as well. In 1911 was the last time, he was the last year Laurier was in office. So it's been more than a century since a prime minister was in office having won four elections. Hmm. Mackenzie King tried it and failed. John Diefenbaker tried it and failed. Pierre Elliott Trudeau tried it and failed. Although he came pretty close. And uh, Stephen Harper tried it and failed. So no one has done it in the modern era. It's, it's, a, it's extraordinarily difficult to do. And you talk about a big win. The 2015 win for the liberals was quite significant. So was the 1984 and 1988 wins for Brian Mulroney. By 1993, this isn't the exact same, not even close. But by 1993, his party was reduced to two seats. So people can love you one day and really dislike you the next. We're we're a fickle bunch. When we say you in
0: that sentence, are we referring to the prime minister himself or to his government? And what I'm getting at is how much of a difference might it make were Trudeau to hand the torch over to somebody else? Christian Freeland maybe? would that increase the Liberals' chances enough to overcome the kind of deficits we're looking at now in the polls, but realizing obviously those could change?
1: In short, I don't know. There isn't a ton of, of precedent to look to. I mean, you could argue the, the Chrétien-Martin handover was one example of that, although the circumstances were particular and the sponsorship scandal had a lot to do with reducing the Liberals to a minority. So that's a bit of a historical asterisk period. And then other than that, The last time a prime minister left their party and left it in a position where the next person could do better was Lester Pearson leaving for Pierre Elliott Trudeau slightly after 65 for the 68 election. So it's been a while. Hmm. (laughs) So who's to say? I, I would imagine liberals are probably asking themselves this same question, but it's possible they've run numbers internally and had these discussions and determined that. Justin Trudeau is the best shot they've got, right? Mm-hmm. And hence why he's staying, but maybe not. It, it's, too, it's too tough to know without more data, but it, it's certainly not a panacea, let's say, at the very least. I mean, I know, you know, party leaders are party leaders, but is Trudeau,
0: I don't want to use hateability as a word, but like is, is the animosity towards him from a big chunk of the electorate uh, separate from their animosity towards the party?
1: That's a good question. And, and I grapple with this a little bit when looking at, you know, net favorables as a, as a rating. And Angus Reid had a June 2023 poll looking at Justin Trudeau's net favorables. And it's worth looking up because it's, it is an absolute train wreck for him. I mean, he's down 23 points across the country. He's down in every single province. He's mm. down with men. He's down with women. He's down with every single age group. And he's down with r- rural and urban voters not great not great at all and, and you know most of when we look at elections in canada we find that people's evaluations and their votes are bound up when both an assessment of the party and the party leader they kind of get jumbled together you could imagine a, a sort of decoupling of that where people would say okay it's a new person and uh, the party is okay i guess and i don't really like these other folks so i can live with it but again, we don't see a ton of that in history. There's There may be the Creche Martin example, but things didn't go particularly well for them in that time period. They were able to salvage a minority government, but you know who knows if Chrétien could have done better, possibly. Um, we will call what happened in 1992-93 with Kim Campbell taking over for a deeply unpopular Brian Mulroney. The party was reduced to seats. Kim Campbell wasn't Brian Mulroney, but she wasn't able to to reverse the party's fortunes. Um, in fact, she had no shot, right? I mean, what are you going to do in that situation? And arguably, the liberals could be in a similar position where you can't really bring someone in this late in the ball game as a closer or a relief. I don't know. What, what do you think? Is it, a, is it a relief pitcher or a closer? I don't know what you'd call them in this case.
0: I mean, right now, it's uh, the guy you bring in when you're already down, and you just need to eat some innings. (laughs)
1: That's right.
0: It's the patsy. Um, And it would be a particularly bad look, perhaps, if they did that to Christia Freeland, given that Kim Campbell is uh, the only woman to serve as prime minister and was essentially dealt that same hand.
1: I mean, it would be an extraordinarily bad look. That said, uh, I don't happen to think Christia Freeland is a particularly talented politician. Uh, She might be a a remarkable mind, uh, a capable governor. Which is to say minister, but as a retail politician in this sort of scenario, I'm not so sure it could indeed make things a lot worse, right and so it it might doubly work against them insofar as she may not be able to get the the job done. But the other question is who could right i mean I'm not, you look at the liberal lot and say who who could step in at this point and do better?" I'm not so sure anybody could, especially since you would presumably want to do it now so that that person had time to, to, to tell the country who they are, so the country had time to get to know them, which there really isn't a ton of that left. Uh, so it's, it's generally just bad news across the board for them right now. Well, let's leave the assumption then
0: that uh, Trudeau will stay on as leader heading to the next election whenever that is. One of the things you've looked at in this piece and and in other places are the circumstances around that election. So first of all, vote efficiency. How could the distribution of the Liberals' remaining votes, whatever they are, help keep them in power even uh, if their popularity declines the way we've seen
1: it? Right. So in a handful of times in Canadian history, actually 13% of elections, uh, the party with with the lower percentage of the popular vote, has won more seats. It happens. But it happened twice in a row, 2019, 2021, in favor of the liberals. Mm -hmm. And what that tells us is the liberals have votes in the right place. They have an efficient vote, which is to say that a vote for the liberals is more likely to result in a seat being won than a vote for the conservatives because of where it's distributed. So the Liberals are really coasting on having an efficient vote, particularly in Ontario. And so they were able to eke out small minority governments in 2019, 2021. But their vote share has been shrinking over time. Mm -hmm. And now they're slipping in Ontario, and they're slipping in Atlantic Canada, and they're slipping in British Columbia. You can read about that in The Rip. Eric Granny has broken it down, and it's great. And that's extraordinarily bad news for them. So the efficient vote only goes so far... If you're losing significant ground in key areas, particularly in Ontario, where you have to win, they right. can still hold on to Quebec. But if they lose Ontario and they lose in Atlantic Canada, they lose in British Columbia, you're never going to make that up anywhere because you simply can't, right? And for the, the conservatives, we've often said government goes through Ontario, particularly the majority government for them, goes through Ontario. Right. And it's looking like they're ticking up there. In fact, some pollsters now and some projections are saying they're eking into majority territory, potentially. That's a good place to discuss
0: what happens if the conservatives win but don't get a majority and the total number of seats of the liberals and the NDP combined would technically allow them to create a government, but the conservatives have won more seats. This is a scenario that a lot of people have been talking about as more plausible than we ever would have thought. Can you explain it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So what happens is civil war. Yes. (laughs) It's a very civilized civil war. We pummel one another with um, rainbow birthday cake timbits. And the person with the fewest sprinkles on them at the end becomes the prime minister. This is just constitutional stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean,
0: what you're about to describe is almost as convoluted.
1: No, it's far, it's far less, I promise. Um, here's, the, here's the deal. The, the prime minister remains the prime minister no matter what, until they resign or are dismissed by the governor general.
0: What does that mean in practice?
1: Right, so in practice, you have an election, something happens, the prime minister remains the prime minister. They have the constitutional right to go to the House of Commons To meet the House of Commons and to try to gain the confidence of the House, no matter what happened in the election. They could have one seat and they could say, I'm going to go try to convince (laughs) 337 people or a majority of them to vote for me in the House of Commons and show confidence. They would lose, but they could try. But typically what happens is the party with the most seats ends up governing because the prime minister says, I can't make this work. I'm out. Yeah. And the governor general says, okay, well, you folks over here have the most seats. It seems like you can probably work it out. You want to give it a shot? And they say, of course we do. And they go. The last time that a government had fewer seats, but tried to govern was 1925. It did not go particularly well initially. Although later (laughs) they won the next election and
0: they were back in power. This situation would then call for basically a renewal, I guess, of the supply and confidence motion that the liberals and NDP uh, have had going for the last little while. And so uh, in this scenario, Justin Trudeau would stand up after the election and say, I would in fact like to try to form government and the combined votes of the liberal and NDP MPs would be enough to keep him in power. And then Pierre Polyev would freak out and so would the country.
1: Is that about right? Well, he would. So the key, a key distinction is, is, is that rather than f- try to form government, he would try to uh, hold on to government because right. the government never breaks. He continues to be the government. He would say, "No, no, I can keep this going. Let me continue to to govern this ministry." The what they call the Trudeau ministry. The governor general would say, "Okay, that's your right. Go give it a shot." And if Trudeau could command the confidence of the House, as you mentioned, probably through an arrangement with the New Democrats either a supply and confidence agreement like they have now, or in fact, a formal coalition where members of the new Democrats would enter the cabinet, which would make it a coalition government, but less likely that, then he could give that a shot. That said, history suggests what he would actually do is quit. Mm. Yeah, and I think the most likely scenario, this is one of you know, Paul Wells' old laws of Canadian politics, is that we tend towards the most boring outcome. Right even though all of us in the media get super worked up about the potentials because it's sort of interesting and exciting and certainly possible. The most likely outcome, as Trudeau says, you won more seats, go give it a shot. And the liberals then, in fact, support the conservative government, which they did plenty of times in the Harper years. People have very short memories. Right. Go back to 2008, 2011. The liberals who were in omni-shambles at the time supported the Harper government all the time, either directly by voting for them or abstaining, Right. They would probably do the same thing again given the lack of a timbit civil war then my last question
0: is about just where we are now given the distance from the next election assuming it's called at the end of uh this current period what does history tell us in canada is the likelihood of a government clamoring back from where the liberals find themselves now with polls you know reaching down towards a double-digit deficit like is this, this kind of result at this time usually a death knell or, you know, is a turnaround possible? Well, it's not
1: a super common graph. If you look at 2019 and 2021, those pools are tight. Uh, leading up to the election, they, they're tight for a long time. In fact, go go and look at the, the kind of tracking all the way back to 2019. It's kind of a really tight race between the Liberals and the Conservatives all the way through now, where it's really starting to diverge. There's a little bit of divergence last year. There's increasing divergence, but now you know if you look at that 10 point gap, that's an extraordinary gap. And I, I went back and looked at a lot of these. Uh, divides for the last several elections. I couldn't really find an an analogous one federally. It doesn't look good. The one I did find subnationally, which is something I lived through in British Columbia when I was living there, was 2013. Christy Clark, the BC liberal leader at the time and prime and uh, premier against um, the, the new Democrat leader, Adrian Dix. And the polls had the NDP way ahead of the BC liberals for the better part of the year And uh, it looked like it was over. In fact, I remember a headline from the province was, uh, this man could kick a dog and still win (laughs) (laughs) about Adrian Dix. And then on election night, Christy Clark won. So it wasn't so much that the the liberals did close the gap in the spring of 2013, but then they, you know, punched across the end zone during the election, but it was extraordinarily tight right up to the end. So in theory, it could happen, and uh, and you can see a ton of movement during the election because elections matter, but right now it's not looking good. So while lots of things could happen at the moment, if you're betting, the odds are certainly against the liberals, big giant caveat lots can change between now and 2025 and the election matters a great deal so the liberals could certainly pull it out but I would say at the moment history is probably against them
0: David as always thank you for this analysis
1: and uh, it's always good when we can
0: learn a little bit about Canadian political history on our daily
1: news podcast I think it's fantastic and and uh, I'm always happy to, to come on and post Timbit civil war I'll dust myself off and come back if need be David Mosscrop
0: is our favorite political analyst. He is a podcaster, writer, thinker, author, as I mentioned, too dumb for democracy. Get it where you get your books, or let David read it to you via the audiobook. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always find us on social media, at least on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can still get your Canadian news on Twitter, and no, not calling it X. You can also write to us via email. Hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca is that address. And you can call us via the old-fashioned telephone. The number is 416-935-5935. Leave us a voicemail. Let us know what you think. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.
1: The The news cycle these days can be relentless. relentless.
0: Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth. Something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency.